Section 14 of The King in Yellow by Robert W. Chambers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eva Stays. The Street of Our Lady of the Fields, Part 3 and 4. 3. The Luxembourg was a blaze of flowers. He walked slowly through the long avenues of trees, past mossy marbles and old-time columns, and threading the grove by the bronze lion, came upon the tree-crowned terrace above the fountain. Below lay the basin shining in the sunlight. Flowering almonds encircled the terrace, and, in a greater spiral, groves of chestnuts wound in and out and down among the moist thickets by the western palace wing. At one end of the avenue of trees, the observatory rose, its white domes piled up like an eastern mosque. At the other end stood the heavy palace, with every window pane ablaze in the fierce sun of June. Around the fountain, children in white-capped nurses armed with bamboo poles were pushing toy boats, whose sails hung limp in the sunshine. A dark policeman, wearing red epaulets and a dress sword, watched them for a while and then went away to remonstrate with a young man who had unchained his dog. The dog was pleasantly occupied in rubbing grass and dirt into his back while his legs waved in the air. The policeman pointed at the dog. He was speechless with indignation. "'Well, Captain?' smiled the young fellow. "'Well, Monsieur Student?' growled the policeman. What have you come and complained to me for? If you don't chain him, I'll take him, shouted the policeman. What's that to me, mon capitaine? What? What? Isn't that bulldog yours? If it was, don't you suppose I'd chain him? The officer glared for a moment in silence, then, deciding that as he was a student, he was wicked, grabbed at the dog, who promptly dodged. Around and around the flower beds they raced, and when the officer came too near for comfort, the bulldog cut across a flower bed, which, perhaps, was not playing fair. The young man was amused, and the dog also seemed to enjoy the exercise. The policeman noticed this and decided to strike at the fountainhead of the evil. He stormed up to the student and said, As the owner of this public nuisance, I arrest you. But, objected the other, I disclaim the dog. That was a poser. It was useless to attempt to catch the dog until three gardeners lent a hand, but then the dog simply ran away and disappeared in the rue de Medici. The policeman shambled off to find consolation among the white-capped nurses, and the student, looking at his watch, stood up yawning. Then, catching sight of Hastings, he smiled and bowed. Hastings walked over to the marble, laughing. "'Why, Clifford,' he said, "'I didn't recognize you.' "'It is my moustache,' sighed the other. "'I sacrificed it to humor a whim of—of—a friend. "'What do you think of my dog?' "'Then he is yours?' cried Hastings. Of course, it's a pleasant change for him, this playing tag with policemen, but he is known now and I'll have to stop it. He's gone home. He always does when the gardeners take a hand. It's a pity. He's fond of rolling on lawns. Then they chatted for a moment of Hastings' prospect, and Clifford politely offered to stand his sponsor at the studio, 
"'You see, old Tabby, I mean Dr. Byram, told me about you before I met you,' explained Clifford, "'and Elian and I will be glad to do anything we can.' Then, looking at his watch again, he muttered, "'I have just ten minutes to catch the Versailles train. Au revoir!' and started to go, but catching sight of a girl advancing by the fountain, took off his hat with a confused smile. "'Why are you not at Versailles?' she said with an almost imperceptible acknowledgment of Hastings' presence. "'I'm... I... I'm going,' murmured Clifford. For a moment they faced each other, and then Clifford, very red, stammered, "'With your permission, I have the honor of presenting you to my friend, Monsieur Hastings.' Hastings bowed low. She smiled very sweetly, but there was something of malice in the quiet inclination of her small Parisian head. "'I could have wished,' she said, "'that Monsieur Clifford might spare me more time when he brings with him so charming an American.' "'Must—must must I go, Valentine?' began Clifford. "'Certainly,' she replied." Clifford took his leave with very bad grace, wincing when she added, "'And give my dearest love to Cecile,' and he disappeared in the Rue de Assas. The girl turned as if to go, but then, suddenly remembering Hastings, looked at him and shook her head. "'Monsieur Clifford is so perfectly harebrained,' she smiled. "'It is embarrassing sometimes. You have heard, of course, all about his success at the salon.' He looked puzzled, and she noticed it. "'You have been to the salon, of course.' "'Why, no,' he answered. "'I only arrived in Paris three days ago.' She seemed to pay little heed to his explanation, but continued. "'Nobody imagined he had the energy to do anything good, but on varnishing day the salon was astonished by the entrance of Monsieur Clifford, who strolled about as bland as you please, with an orchid in his buttonhole, and a beautiful picture on the line.' She smiled to herself at the reminiscence and looked at the fountain. Monsieur Bougereau told me that Monsieur Julien was so astonished that he only shook hands with Monsieur Clifford in a dazed manner and actually forgot to pat him on the back. Fancy, she continued with much merriment, fancy Papa Julien forgetting to pat one on the back. Hastings wondered at her acquaintance with the gray Bougereau, looked at her with respect. "'May I ask,' he said diffidently, "'whether you are a pupil of Bergerot?' "'I?' she said in some surprise. Then she looked at him curiously. Was he permitting himself the liberty of joking on such short acquaintance? His pleasant, serious face questioned hers. "'Chance,' she thought. "'What a droll man!' "'Surely you study art,' he said. She leaned back on the crooked stick of her parasol and looked at him. Why do you think so? Because you speak as if you did. You are making fun of me, she said, and it is not good taste. She stopped, confused, as he colored to the roots of his hair. How long have you been in Paris? She said at length. Three days, he replied gravely. But, but, surely you are not a nouveau. You speak French so well. Then, after a pause, really, are you a nouveau? I am, he said. She sat down on the marble bench, lately occupied by Clifford, and tilting her parasol over her small head, looked at him. I don't believe it. He felt the compliment, and, for a moment, hesitated to declare himself one of the despised. 
Then, mustering up his courage, he told her how new and green he was, and all with a frankness which made her blue eyes open very wide, and her lips part in the sweetest of smiles. You have never seen a studio? Never. Nor a model? No. How funny, she said solemnly. Then they both laughed. And you, have you seen studios? Hundreds. And models? Millions. And you know Bouguereau? Yes, and Henner, and Constant, and Lawrence, and Pou de Chavans, and Dagnon, and Coutois, and, and all the rest of them. And yet you say you are not an artist. Pardon, she said gravely. Did I say I was not? Won't you tell me? He hesitated. At first she looked at him, shaking her head and smiling. Then of a sudden her eyes fell and she began tracing figures with her parasol in the gravel at her feet. Hastings had taken a place on the seat and now, with his elbows on his knees, sat watching the spray drifting above the fountain jet. A small boy, dressed as a sailor, stood poking his yacht and crying, I won't go home! I won't go home! His nurse raised her hands to heaven. Just like a little American boy, thought Hastings, and a pang of homesickness shot through him. Presently the nurse captured the boat, and the small boy stood at bay. Monsieur René, when you decide to come here, you may have your boat. The boy backed away, scowling. Give me my boat! I say, he cried, and don't call me Renee, for my name's Randall, and you know it. Hello, said Hastings, Randall, that's English. I am an American, announced the boy in perfectly good English, turning to look at Hastings. And she's such a fool, she calls me Renee because Mama calls me Ranny. Here he dodged the exasperated nurse and took up his station behind Hastings, who laughed, and catching him round the waist, lifted him onto his lap. One of my countrymen, he said to the girl beside him. He smiled while he spoke, but there was a queer feeling in his throat. Don't you see the stars and stripes on my yacht? demanded Randall. Sure enough, the American colors hung limply under the nurse's arm. Oh, cried the girl, he is charming, and impulsively stooped to kiss him, but the infant Randall wiggled out of Hastings' arm, and his nurse pounced upon him with angry glance at the girl. She reddened and then bit her lips as the nurse, with eyes still fixed on her, dragged the child away and ostentatiously wiped his lips with her handkerchief. Then she stole a look at Hastings and bit her lip again. "'What an ill-tempered woman,' he said. "'In America, most nurses are flattered when people kiss their children.' For an instant, she tipped the parasol to hide her face, then closed it with a snap and looked at him defiantly. "'Do you think it is strange that she objected?' "'Why not?' he said in surprise. Again, she looked at him with quick, searching eyes. His eyes were clear and bright, and he smiled back, repeating, Why not? You are droll, she murmured, bending her head. Why? But she made no answer and sat silent, tracing curves and circles in the dust with her parasol. After a moment, he said, I am glad to see that young people have so much liberty here. I understood that the French were not at all like us, you know, in America, or at least where I live in Millbrook, girls have every liberty, go out alone and receive their friends alone, and I was afraid I should miss it here. But I see how it is now, and I am glad I was mistaken. She raised her eyes to his and kept them there. He continued pleasantly. 
Since I have sat here, I have seen a lot of pretty girls walking alone on the terrace there, and then you are alone too. Tell me, for I do not know French customs, do you have the liberty of going to the theatre without a chaperone? For a long time she studied his face, and then, with a trembling smile, she said, Why do you ask me? Because you must know, of course, he said gaily. Yes, she replied indifferently. I know. He waited for an answer, but getting none, decided that perhaps she had misunderstood him. I hope you don't think I mean to presume on our short acquaintance, he began. In fact, it is very odd, but I don't know your name. When Clifford presented me, he only mentioned mine. Is that the custom in France? It is the custom in the Latin Quarter, she said with a queer light in her eyes. Then suddenly she began talking almost feverishly. You must know, Monsieur Hastings, that we are all en poussant jeune. Here in the Latin Quarter, we are very bohemian, and etiquette and ceremony are out of place. It was for that Monsieur Clifford presented you to me with small ceremony, and left us together with less. Only for that, and I am his friend, and I have many friends in the Latin Quarter, and we all know each other very well. And I am not studying art, but, but, but what? Bewildered. I shall not tell you. It is a secret she said with an uncertain smile on both cheeks a pink spot was burning and her eyes were very bright then in a moment her face fell do you know monsieur clifford very intimately not very after a while she turned to him grave and a little pale my name is valentine valentine tussaud might might i ask a service of you on such very short acquaintance oh he cried i should be honoured it is only this, she said gently. It is not much. Promise me not to speak to Monsieur Clifford about me. Promise me that you will speak to no one about me. I promise, he said, greatly puzzled. She laughed nervously. I wish to remain a mystery. It is a caprice. But, he began, I had wished, I had hoped that you might give Monsieur Clifford permission to bring me, to present me at your house. My, my house? she repeated. I mean, where you live, in fact, to present me to your family. The change in the girl's face shocked him. I beg your pardon, he cried. I have hurt you. And as quick as a flash, she understood him because she was a woman. My parents are dead, she said. Presently, he began again, very gently. Would it displease you if I beg you to receive me? Is it the custom? I cannot she answered then glancing up at him i am sorry i should like to but believe me i cannot he bowed seriously and looked vaguely uneasy it isn't because i don't wish to i i like you you are very kind to me kind he cried surprised and puzzled i like you she said slowly and we will see each other sometimes if you will at friends houses no not at friends' houses. Where? Here, she said with defiant eyes. Why, he cried, in Paris you are much more liberals in your views than we are. She looked at him curiously. Yes, we are very bohemian. I think it is charming, he declared. You see, we shall be in the best of society, she ventured timidly, with a pretty gesture towards the statues of the dead queens ranged in stately ranks above the terrace. 
He looked at her delighted, and she brightened at the success of her innocent little pleasantry. Indeed, she smiled, I shall be well chaperoned, because, you see, we are under the protection of the gods themselves. Look, there are Apollo and Juno and Venus on their pedestals, counting them on her small gloved fingers, and Ceres and Hercules and— But I can't make out— Hastings turned to look up at the winged god under whose shadow they were seated. Why, it is love, he said. For There is a nouveau here, drawled the fat, leaning around his easel and addressing his friend Bowles. There is a nouveau here who is so tender and green and appetizing that heaven help him if he should fall into a salad bowl. Hey, see, inquired Bowles plastering in a background with a broken palette knife and squinting at the effect with approval. Yes, Guidonk or Okosh, and how he ever grew up among the daisies and escaped the cows, heaven knows. Bowles rubbed his thumb across the outline of his study to throw in a little atmosphere, as he said, glared at the model, pulled at his pipe, and finding it out, struck a match on his neighbor's back to relight it. His name continue Lafat, hurling a bit of bread at the hat-rack. His name is Hastings. He is a berry. He knows no more about the world. And here Mr. Lafat's face spoke volumes for his own knowledge of that planet, than a maiden cat on its first moonlight stroll. Bowles, now having succeeded in lighting his pipe, repeated the thumb-touch on the other edge of the study and said, Ah! Yes, continued his friend. And you would imagine it. He seems to think that everything here goes on as it does in his little backwood ranch at home. He talks about the pretty girls who come walk alone in the streets, says how sensible it is, how French parents are misrepresented in America, says that for his part he finds French girls, and he confessed to only knowing one. As jolly as American girls, I tried to set him straight tried to give him a pointer as to what sort of ladies walk about alone or with students, and he was either too stupid or too innocent to catch on. Then I gave it to him straight, and he said I was a vile-minded fool, and marched off. "'Did you assist him with your shoe?' inquired Bowles, languidly interested. "'Well, no. He called you a vile-minded fool.' "'He was correct,' said Clifford from his easel in front. "'What?' "'What do you mean?' demanded Lafat, turning red. "'That,' replied Clifford. "'Who spoke to you? Is this your business?' sneered Bowles, nearly lost his balance as Clifford swung about and eyed him. "'Yes,' he said slowly. "'It's my business.' No one spoke for some time. Then Clifford sang out, "'I say, Hastings!' And when Hastings left his easel and came round, he nodded toward the astonished Lafat. This man has been disagreeable to you, and I want to tell you that any time you feel inclined to kick him, why, I will hold the other creature. Hastings and Bear said, Why, no, I don't agree with his ideas, nothing more. Clifford said, naturally, and slipping his arm through Hastings, strolled about with him, and introduced him to several of his own friends, at which all the nouveau opened their eyes with envy, and the studio were given to understand that Hastings, although prepared to do menial work as the latest nouveau, was already within the charm circle of the old, respected and feared, the truly great. The rest finished. 
the model resumed his place, and work went on in a chorus of songs and yells and every ear-splitting noise which the art students utters when studying the beautiful. Five o'clock struck. The model yawned, stretched, and climbed into his trousers, and the noisy contents of six studios crowded through the halls and down into the street. Ten minutes later, Hastings found himself on top of a Montrogue tram, and shortly afterward was joined by Clifford. They climbed down at the Rue Gay-Lussac. "'I always stop here,' observed Clifford. "'I like the walk through the Luxembourg.' "'By the way,' said Hastings, "'how can I call on you when I don't know where you live?' "'Why? I live opposite you.' "'What? The studio and the garden where the almond trees are and the blackbirds?' "'Exactly,' said Clifford. "'I'm with my friend Elliot.' Hastings thought of the description of the two American artists which he had heard from Miss Susie Bing, and looked blank. Clifford continued, "'Perhaps you had better let me know when you think of coming so. So I will be sure to—to to be there,' he ended rather lamely. "'I shouldn't care to meet any of your model friends there,' said Hastings, smiling. "'You know, my ideas are rather straight-laced. I suppose you would say puritanical. I shouldn't enjoy it and wouldn't know how to behave.' "'Oh, I understand,' said Clifford, but added with great cordiality. "'I'm sure we'll be friends, although you may not approve of me and my set. "'But you will like Severn and Selby, because—because, because, well, they are like yourself, old chap.' After a moment, he continued, "'There is something I want to speak to you about. "'You see, when I introduced you last week, in Luxembourg, to Valentine—' "'Not a word,' cried Hastings, smiling. "'You must not tell me a word of her.' Why, no, not a word, he said gaily. I insist. Promise me upon your honor you will not speak of her until I give you permission. Promise. I promise, said Clifford, amazed. She is a charming girl. We had such delightful chat after you left, and I thank you for presenting me, but not another word about her until I give you permission. Oh, murmured Clifford. Remember your promise, he smiled as he turned into his gateway. Clifford strolled across the street, and, traversing the ivy-colored alley, entered his garden. He felt for his studio key, muttering, I wonder, I wonder, but of course he doesn't. He entered the hallway, and, fitting the key into the door, stood staring at the two cards tacked over the panels. Foxhall Clifford. Richard Osborne Elliot. Why the devil does he, he want me to speak of her? He opened the door, and, discouraging the caresses of two brindled bulldogs, sank down on the sofa. Elliot sat smoking and sketching with a piece of charcoal by the window. "'Hello,' he said without looking around. Clifford gazed absently at the back of his head, murmuring, "'I'm afraid. I'm afraid that man is too innocent. I say, Elliot,' he said at last, "'Hastings, you know the chap that old Tabby Byram came around here to tell us about, the day you had a hide Colette in the armoire.' Yes. What's up? Oh, nothing. He's a brick. Yes, said Elliot, without enthusiasm. Don't you think so? demanded Clifford. Why, yes, but he is going to have a tough time when some of his illusions are dispelled. More shame to those who have to dispel them. Yes. Wait until he comes to pay his call on us, unexpectedly, of course. Clifford looked virtuous and lighted a cigar. I was just going to say— he observed, that I have asked him not to come around without letting us know, so I can postpone any orgy you may have intended. Ah! 
cried Elliot indignantly. I suppose you put it to him in that way. Not exactly, grinned Clifford. Then, more seriously, I don't want anything to occur here to bother him. He's a brick, and it's a pity we can't be more like him. I am, observed Elliot complacently, only living with you. Listen, cried the other. I have managed to put my foot in it in great style. Do you know what I've done? Well, the first time I met him in the street, or rather, it was in the Luxembourg, I introduced him to Valentine. Did he object? Believe me, said Clifford solemnly, this rustic Hastings has no more idea that Valentine is, is, in fact, is Valentine than he has that he himself is a beautiful example of moral decency in a quarter where morals are as rare as elephants. I heard enough in conversation between the blackguard Lufat and the little immoral eruption bulls to open my eyes. I tell you, he sings as a trump. He's a healthy, clean-minded young fellow, bred in a small country village, brought up with the idea that saloons are way stations to hell. And as for women, well, demanded Elliot, well, said Clifford, his idea of the dangerous woman is probably a painted Jezebel. Probably, replied the other. He's a trump, said Clifford, and if he swears the world is as good and as pure as his own, I'll swear he's right. Elliot rubbed his charcoal on his file to get a point and turned to his sketch, saying, He will never hear any pessimism from Richard Osborne E. He's a lesson to me, said Clifford. Then he unfolded a small perfumed note written on rose-colored paper, which had been lying on the table before him. He read it, smiled, whistled a bar or two from Miss Helliet, and sat down to answer it on his best cream-laid note paper. When it was written and sealed, he picked up his stick and marched up and down the studio two or three times, whistling. "'Going out?' inquired the other without turning. "'Yes,' he said, but lingered a moment over Elliot's shoulder, watching him pick out the lights in his sketch with a bit of bread. "'Tomorrow is Sunday,' he observed after a moment silent. "'Well?' inquired Elliot. "'Have you seen Colette?' "'No, I will tonight. She and Rowden and Jacqueline are coming to Boulant's. I suppose you and Cecile will be there. Well, no, replied Clifford. Cecile dines at home tonight, and I, I had an idea of going to Mignon's. Elliot looked at him with disapproval. You can make all the arrangements for La Roche without me, he continued, avoiding Elliot's eyes. What are you up to now? Nothing, protested Clifford. Don't tell me replied his chum with scorn. Fellows don't rush off to Mignon's when they set dine at Boulons. Who is it now? But no, I won't ask that. What's the use? Then he lifted up his voice in complaint and beat upon the table with his pipe. What's the use of ever trying to keep track of you? What will Cecile say? Oh, yes, what will she say? It is a pity you can't be constant. Two months. Yes, by Jove, and the quarter is indulgent. But you abuse its good nature, and mine too. Presently he arose, and jamming his hat on his head, marched to the door. Heaven alone knows why anyone puts up with your antics, but they all do, and so do I. If I were Cecile or any of the other pretty fools after whom you have toddled and will, and all human probabilities continue to toddle, I say if I were Cecile, I'd spank you. Now I'm going to Boulons, 
and as usual i shall make excuses for you and arrange the affair i don't care continental where you are going but by the skull of the studio skeleton if you don't turn up tomorrow with your sketch kit under one arm and cecile under the other if you don't turn up in good shape i am done with you and the rest can think what they please good night Clifford said good night with a pleasant smile as he could muster, and then sat down with his eyes on the door. He took out his watch and gave Elliot ten minutes to vanish, then rang the concierge's call, murmuring, Oh dear, oh dear, why the devil do I do it? Alfred, he said, as that gimlet-eyed person answered the call. Make yourself clean and proper, Alfred, and replace your sabbats with a pair of shoes. Then put on your best hat and take this letter to the big white house in the Rue de Dragon. There is no answer, mon petit Alfred. The concierge departed with a snort in which unwillingness for the errand and affection for Monsieur Clifford were blended. Then, with great care, the young man arranged himself in all the beauties of his and Elliot's wardrobe. He took his time about it, and occasionally interrupted his toilet to play his banjo, or make pleasing diversion for the bulldogs by gambling about on all fours. "'I've got two hours before me,' he thought, and borrowed a pair of Elliot's silken footgear, with which he and the dogs played ball until he decided to put them on. Then he lighted a cigarette and inspected his dress coat. When he had emptied it of four handkerchiefs, a fan, and a pair of crumpled gloves as long as his arm, he decided it was not suited to add eclat to his charms and cast about in his mind for a substitute. Elliot was too thin, and, anyways, his coats were now under lock and key. Rowden probably was as badly off as himself. Hastings! Hastings was the man! But when he threw on a smoking jacket and sauntered over to Hastings' house, he was informed that he had been gone over an hour. Now, where in the name of all that's reasonable could he have gone? muttered Clifford, looking down the street. The maid didn't know, so he bestowed upon her a fascinating smile and lounged back to the studio. Hastings was not far away. The Luxembourg is within five minutes' walk to the Rue Notre-Dame-de-Champs and there he sat under the shadow of a winged god, and there he sat for an hour, poking holes in the dust and watching the steps which lead from the northern terrace to the fountains. The sun hung, a purple globe above the misty hills of the Mudon. Long streamers of clouds touched with rose swept low on the western sky, and the dome of the distant Invalides burned like an opal through the haze. Behind the palace, the smoke from a high chimney mounted straight into the air, purple until it crossed the sun, where it changed to a bar of smoldering fire. High above the darkening foliage of the chestnuts, the twin towers of St. Sulpice rose an ever-deepening silhouette. A sleepy blackbird was caroling in some near thicket, and pigeons passed and repassed with the whispers of soft winds in their wings. The light on the palace windows had died away, and the dome of the Pantheon swam aglow above the northern terrace, a fiery Valhalla in the sky. While below, in grim array, along the terrace range, the marble ranks of queens looked out into the west. From the end of a long walk by the northern façade of the palace came the noise of omnibuses and the cries of the street. Hastings looked at the palace clock, six, and as his own watch agreed with it, he fell to poking holes in the gravel again. A constant stream of people passed between the Odeon and the fountain, priests in black with silver-buckled shoes, lined soldiers slouchy and rakish, 
neat girls without hats bearing milliners' boxes, students with black portfolios and high hats, students with berets and big canes, nervous, quick-stepping officers, symphonies in turquoise and silver, ponderous, jangling cavalrymen all over dust, pastry cooks boys skipping along the utter disregard for the safety of the basket balanced on the impish heads and then the lean outcast the shambling paris tramp slouching with shoulders bent and little eye furtively scanning the ground for smokers refuse all these moved in steady stream across the fountain circle and out into the city by the odeon whose long arcades are now beginning to flicker with gas jets the melancholy bells of the St. Sulpice struck the hour, and the clock tower of the palace lighted up. Then hurrying steps sounded across the gravel, and Hastings raised his head. How late you are, he said, but his voice was hoarse, and only his flushed face told how long had seemed the waiting. She said, I was kept, indeed, I was so much annoyed, and, and I may only stay a moment. She sat down beside him, casting a furtive glance over her shoulder at the gods upon his pedestal. What nuisance, intruding Cupid, is still there. Wings and arrows, too, said Hastings, unheeding her motion to be seated. Wings, she murmured, oh, yes, to fly away with when he's tired of his play. Of course, it was a man who conceived the idea of wings, otherwise Cupid would have been insupportable. Do you think so? Ma foi! It's what men think, and women. Oh, she said with a toss of her small head, I really forget what we are speaking of. We were speaking of love, said Hastings. I was not, said the girl. Then, looking up at the marble god, I don't care for this one at all. I don't believe he knows how to shoot his arrows. No, indeed, he is a coward. He creeps up like an assassin in the twilight. I don't approve of cowardice, she announced and turned her back on the statue. I think, said Hastings quietly, that he does shoot fairly, yes, and even gives one warning. Is it your experience, Monsieur Hastings? He looked straight into her eyes and said, He is warning me. Heed the warning, then, she cried with a nervous laugh. As she spoke, she stripped off her gloves, then carefully proceeded to draw them on again. When this was accomplished, she glanced at the palace clock, saying, Oh dear, how late it is, furled her umbrella then unfurled it and finally looked at him. No, he said, I shall not heed his warning. Oh dear, she sighed again, still talking about that tiresome statue. Then, stealing a glance at his face, I suppose, I suppose you are in love. I don't know, he muttered. I suppose I am. She raised her head with a quick gesture. You seem delighted at the idea, she said, but bit her lip and trembled as his eyes met hers. Then sudden fear came over her, and she sprang up, staring into the gathering shadows. "'Are you cold?' he said. But she only answered, "'Oh, dear, oh, dear, it is late, so late, I must go. Good night.' She gave him her gloved hand a moment, and then withdrew it with a start. "'What is it?' he insisted. "'Are you frightened?' She looked at him strangely. "'No, no, not frightened. You are very good to me.' "'By Jove!' he burst out. "'What do you mean by saying I'm good to you? "'That's at least the third time, and I don't understand.' "'The sound of a drum from the guardhouse at the palace cut him short. "'Listen,' she whispered. "'They are going to close. It's late. Oh, so late.' 
the rolling of the drum came nearer and nearer then the silhouette of the drummer cut the sky above the eastern terrace the fading light lingered a moment on his belt and bayonet then he passed into shadows drumming the echoes awake the roll became fainter along the eastern terrace then grew and grew and rattled with increasing sharpness when he passed the avenue by the bronze lion and turned down the western terrace walk louder and louder the drum sounded and the echoes struck back the notes from the grey palace walls and now the drummer loomed up before them his red trousers a dull spot in the gathering gloom the brass of his drum and bayonet touched with a pale spark his epaulets tossing on his shoulder he passed leaving the crash of the drum in their ears and far into the alley of trees they saw his little tin cup shining on his haversack then the sentinels began the monotonous cry on firm on firm and the bugle blew from the barracks in the rue de Turon. on firm on firm good night she whispered i must return alone to-night he watched her until she reached the northern terrace and then sat down on the marble seat until a hand on his shoulder and a glimmer of bayonets warned him away she passed on through the grove and turning into the rue de medici traversed it to the boulevard at the corner she bought a bunch of violets and walked along the boulevard to the rue de Ecoles. a cab was drawn up before boulons and a pretty girl aided by elliot jumped out valentine cried the girl come with us i can't she said stopping a moment i have a rendezvous at mignon's not victor cried the girl laughing but she passed with a little shiver nodding good-night then turning to the boulevard st germain she walked a little faster to escape a gay party sitting before the cafe cluny who called to her to join them at the door of the restaurant mignon stood a coal-black negro in buttons he took off his peak cap as she mounted the carpeted stairs send eugene to me she said at the office and passing through the hallway to the right of the dining-room stopped before a row of panelled doors a waiter passed and she repeated her demand for eugene who presently appeared noiselessly skipping and bowed murmuring madame who is here no one in the cabinets madame in the half madame madeleine and monsieur gay monsieur de clamont monsieur clisson madame marie and their set then he looked around and bowing again murmured monsieur awaits madame since half an hour and he knocked at one of the panelled doors bearing the number six Clifford opened the door, and the girl entered. The garçon bowed her in, and whispering, Will monsieur have the goodness to ring? Vanished. He helped her off with her jacket and took her hat and umbrella. When she was seated at the little table with Clifford opposite, she smiled and leaned forward on both elbows, looking him in the face. What are you doing here? she demanded. Waiting, he replied, in accents of adoration. For an instant she turned and examined herself in glass. The wide blue eyes, the curling hair, the straight nose, the short curled lip flashed in the mirror in an instant only, and then its depths reflected her pretty neck and back. Thus I do turn my back on vanity, she said, and then leaning forward again, what are you doing here? Waiting for you, repeated Clifford, slightly troubled, and Cecile, now don't, Valentine, do you know, she said calmly, I dislike your conduct. He was a little disconcerted and rang for Eugene to cover his confusion. The soup was bisque and the wine primary, and the courses followed each other with the usual regularity until Eugene brought coffee, and there was nothing left on the table but a small silver lamp. Valentine, 
said Clifford after having obtained permission to smoke. Is it vaudeville or the Eldorado, or both, or the Nouveau Cirque, or... It is here, said Valentine. Well, he said, greatly flattered, I'm afraid I couldn't amuse you. Oh, yes, you are funnier than the Eldorado. Now, see here, don't guy me, Valentines, you always do, and, and, you know what they say, a good laugh kills what? Er, er, love and all that. She laughed until her eyes were moist with tears. Tiens, she cried, he is dead then. Clifford eyed her with growing alarm. Do you know why I came? She said. No, he replied uneasily. I don't. How long have you made love to me? Well, he admitted somewhat startled, I should say, for about a year. It is a year, I think. Are you not tired? He did not answer. Don't you know that I like you too well to, to ever fall in love with you? She said. Don't you know that we are two good comrades, two old friends for that? And were we not? Do you think that I do not know your history, Monsieur Clifford? Don't be, don't be so sarcastic, he urged. Don't be unkind, Valentine. I'm not. I'm kind. I'm very kind. To you and to Cecile. Cecile is tired of me. I hope she is, said the girl, for she deserves a better fate. Tiens, do you know your reputation in the quarter of the inconstant and most inconstant, utterly incorrigible, and no more serious than a gnat on a summer night? Poor Cecile. Clifford looked so uncomfortable that she spoke more kindly. I like you. You know that. Everybody does. You are a spoiled child here. Everything is permitted you, and every one makes allowances, but every one cannot be a victim to caprice. Caprice, he cried. By Jove, if the girls of the Latin Quarter are not capricious. Never mind, never mind about that. You must not sit in judgment. You, of all men, why are you here tonight? Oh, she cried. I will tell you why. Monsieur receives a little note. He sends a little answer. He dresses in his conquering raiment. I don't, said Clifford very red. You do, and it becomes you, she retorted with a faint smile. Then again, very quietly, I am in your power, but I know I am in the power of a friend. I have come to acknowledge it to you here, and it is because of that that I am here to beg of you a, a favor. Clifford opened his eyes, but said nothing. I am in great distress of mind. It is Monsieur Hastings. Well, said Clifford in some astonishment, I want to ask you, she continued in a low voice, I want to ask you to to in case you should speak of me before him not to say not to say i shall not speak of you to him he said quietly can can you prevent others i might if i was present may i ask why that is not fair she murmured you know how how he considers me as he considers every woman you know how different he is from you and the rest i've never seen a man such a man as monsieur hastings he let his cigarette go out unnoticed. I am almost afraid of him, afraid he should know what we all are in the quarter. Oh, I do not wish him to know. I do not wish him to to turn from me, to cease from speaking to me as he does. You, you and the rest cannot know what it has been to me. I could not believe him. I could not believe he was so good and, and noble. I do not wish him to know, 
so soon he will find out sooner or later. He will find out for himself, and then he will turn away from me. Why? she cried passionately. Why should he turn away from me and not from you? Clifford, much embarrassed, eyed his cigarette. The girl rose, very white. He is your friend. You have a right to warn him. He is my friend, he said at length. They looked at each other in silence. Then she cried, By all that I hold to me most sacred, you need not warn him. I shall trust your word, he said pleasantly. End of section 14